0: In Ohio, there is an Air Force veteran who really loves former President Donald Trump. In 2020, he actually used 120 gallons of paint to make it clear just how much he loves Trump. He's perhaps best known for having painted a
1: 19,000-square-foot sign on his front lawn for President Trump in support of
0: Trump. On January 6, 2021, he marched on the U.S. Capitol in protest of the certification of the election. He tweeted a photo with the caption, it's going down on 1-6. This is national political reporter Amy Gardner. He believes that the election was stolen from former President Donald Trump. And now he is the Republican nominee for Congress from Ohio's 9th District. J.R. Majewski is one of more than 100 Republicans who won their primaries by backing Trump's false claims that the 2020 election was rigged. The, quote, big lie.
2: And J.R.
3: won. He won the race. He beat these guys. Come here. Right from the beginning. Say something.
2: You know, this country is missing blue-collar patriots that support this guy right here. The best president this country's ever seen.
1: These folks are winning their nominations. And that says a lot about the direction of the Republican Party right now as we um, look at where we are about a third of the way through uh, primary season.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 14th. Today, we are hearing about candidates who are spreading the so-called big lie and the efforts from the January 6th committee to educate Americans about what the truth is. On Capitol Hill this week, some of the people who were in Trump's closest inner circle are testifying that he became, quote, detached from reality in the aftermath of the 2020 election. But at the same time, it's become almost a prerequisite in GOP primaries to embrace the former president's false claims. We'll talk about what that means for the future of the Republican Party and our democracy. Plus, later in the show, we've got a story about the powerful weapons that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. But now troops need tech support. So, Amy, you have been reporting on how January 6th has impacted the democratic process, what are the kinds of patterns that you're seeing when it comes to current primaries, elections that are happening around the country, and these lingering questions around um, January 6th?
1: So one of the things that I and my colleague Isaac Ernstner noticed as we endeavored to sort of take stock of how Trump's lies about the 2020 election were affecting the primaries was just how pervasive it's become. I mean, it's quite remarkable how many primaries for Congress, Senate, and statewide office have seen the issue of election integrity and what happened in the 2020 election become a a, a driving force. We established two different categories of embracing the false statements. One was an outright embrace of the idea Trump actually won or support for the January 6th protest or, you know, support for uh, a partisan audit or a lawsuit that was seeking to overturn the results, like really hard evidence of election denialism, as we call it. But the second category in some ways is almost more interesting and it broadens the field of impact of this issue in the primaries this year and in the general. And that is the group of candidates who don't go across that line to say that there was something fraudulent or fishy about 2020, but who do say, we need to make our elections more secure, or we need to restore integrity in our elections, or a lot of my constituents don't trust our elections and we need to help shore up that public confidence. And I think that that's a really important group of candidates too, because those are folks who are not saying, wait a minute, hold up, the election was safe and secure. They're trading on the idea that there was something wrong with 2020 without actually saying it out loud.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the January 6th hearings that are happening right now. I think that some people have caught it on TV in the evenings, but I think a lot of people haven't. And I want to talk through, like, what have been some of the big moments of these hearings so far? And for folks who haven't seen it, what are the big takeaways?
1: So the hearings began Thursday
3: The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order.
1: And that first primetime two-hour hearing was intended to be sort of an introduction and an overview where the committee laid out uh, what they are planning to show the American people over the, the next subsequent hearings.
3: Thanks to everyone watching tonight for sharing part of your evening to learn the facts and causes of the events leading up to and including the violent attack on January 6, 2021.
1: And it featured some really high profile former administration figures, including uh, President Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows his daughter and son-in-law, Ivanka and Jared. This is the president's
4: daughter commenting on Bill Barr's statement that the department found no fraud sufficient to overturn the election.
3: How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective.
1: Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I
4: accepted what he was saying.
1: One of the most important takeaways of that first sort of introductory hearing was that we will continue to see as the the next hearings unfold is the efforts by the committee to use the testimony, knowledge, observations and opinions and experiences of Trump's own aides to make their case. The people who were right there around him as this big lie, as they called it, unfolded. They're the ones with the most evidence for what actually happened, and the committee is using them to make their case.
4: Over a series of hearings in the coming weeks, you will hear testimony live and on video from more than half a dozen former White House staff in the Trump administration.
1: In Monday's hearing, the second hearing, which was the the first big hearing to dive into a particular aspect of their investigation, and that was, in fact, what they call the big lie.
4: Last week, uh, as the chairman noted, our committee began outlining a seven-part plan overseen by President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Today, we will begin looking at the initial part of that plan, President Trump's effort to convince millions of Americans that the election was stolen from him by overwhelming fraud.
1: I was fascinated because, of course, that's a topic that I've been writing about for more than a year and a half now. As I sat through that hearing, listening to it in the Washington Post newsroom Monday, I I was just so struck by how many people in the former president's orbit didn't believe that fraud had affected the outcome, believed the accusations to be false, and told Trump that Mm.
0: over and over again. Can you give a few examples of, of who was saying this and when this came up?
1: Yeah, so Bill Stepien, his campaign manager, didn't believe the accusations. Rich Donahue at the uh, Department of Justice didn't believe the accusations. And perhaps most noteworthy of all, Bill Barr, then the attorney general, didn't believe the accusations.
3: But I didn't see any supporting information for it. And I was From what demoralized, because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with uh, with uh, he's become detached from reality if he really believes this stuff.
1: What struck me the most about Barr's testimony, it was fascinating, was the command he had of the facts, And it was very clear to me that he had looked into allegations quite closely. I mean, he was the nation's top prosecutor. He's a lawyer. He knows how to look at evidence. And he has continued to look at evidence. There was a very striking moment in the hearing when he discussed why the movie promoted by a conservative uh, commentator, Dinesh D'Souza, is is nuts, I think his word was, and described why its whole thesis, which is that thousands of quote-unquote mules drove around uh, cities in America, including the Atlanta metro area, and illegally collected mail ballots and dumped them into ballot drop boxes. And he explained why that wasn't actually possible. It was, it was quite remarkable.
3: I was holding my fire on that to see what the photographic evidence was, because I, I thought, well, hell, if they have... A lot of photographs of the same person dumping a lot of ballots in different boxes, you know, that's hard to explain. Um, So I wanted to see what the photographic evidence was. But the uh, cell phone data is is singularly unimpressive. The premise that, you know, if you go by a box, you know, five boxes or whatever it was, you know, that that's a mule is just indefensible.
0: I guess, why did that strike you? What, what was it about hearing people like Attorney General Barr say that they didn't buy these accusations when they first heard them and first looked into them? Like, why why did that seem important? First
1: is that none of these people were saying this publicly at the time. They were saying it privately. That's for the public to judge in terms of uh, the, you know, the whether that was the right course for those public officials. Obviously, there's an argument that having people stay in their roles in the administration as a a guardrail against what Trump might or might not have done to not turn over the reins of power. That's an argument that's out there. But on the other hand, not speaking out in public and persu and trying to persuade the public initially at least that these allegations were false may have allowed the the false narrative to sink in with Trump's supporters. So that's one observation. The other part of it that's extremely important is the question of, what Trump's culpability is in the violence that ensued, given how many times he was told these theories were false. You know, he not only ignored uh, what was told to him or didn't hear it or didn't listen, but he would often, as it was laid out in Monday's hearing, would like the very next day go out and repeat the same accusations, uh, false theories that his aides had told him a matter of hours earlier were not true. And I think that gets to the heart of whether there is a possibility of a a criminal charge against the former president. Did he perpetrate a fraud? Did he know that he was lying? Did he know that he was not telling the truth? Or was he deluded?
0: Amy, you know, it seems to me like part of the thinking behind these hearings, part of why they are being shown on primetime television is to try to educate the public about what is and is not true about the election, try to educate about the efforts that were taken to perpetuate this lie and try to make, make sure that people know that as they are voting in this upcoming election. Do, do you think that's part of it here, that they are trying to kind of put people on guard to look out for candidates who are now campaigning on these same falsehoods?
1: Well, I certainly think that one of the committee's goals here, and they've made this quite clear in various opening statements and public statements and interviews and so on, is to make sure the public understands that what they call the big lie has not gone away and threatens our future elections, both in 2022 and in 2024. So that's a long way of saying yes. They absolutely view the 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 character of the of the current crop of candidates who have embraced these falsehoods to be a threat to our democracy because one of the goals of the of the committee hearings is to is to show the public that this hasn't gone away in fact it's only grown
0: so so let's talk about the ways in which the quote unquote big lie rhetoric or ideas or falsehoods, that that is starting to spread in in more of these campaigns. Can you talk about some of the other notable races where this kind of dynamic is playing out and that candidates are using untrue things about the election to try to appeal to voters?
1: I think one of the very best examples across the country and perhaps alarming examples is the governor's race in Pennsylvania, where a state senator named Doug Mastriano won the Republican nomination.
2: Our view for Pennsylvania is one of hope and freedom that people come here and walk as they see fit, not as some governor or some media hack sees fit. That's right. So our number one goal is first is to restore freedom, right?
1: He has absolutely embraced the lie that the 2020 election was stolen, and he has said explicitly what he would do if he is elected. He's running against the Democratic Attorney General of Pennsylvania, a gentleman named Josh Shapiro, and he has said that if he wins, he will push for legislation in what is the Uh, at least now, a Republican-controlled state legislature that would give the legislature the right to take control of how presidential electors are awarded. And that's not illegal. The the Constitution is, is explicit that the states get to decide the time, place, and manner of elections. But it's revolutionary to take away the popular vote, to disregard the will of the people, and to give the legislature the power with a new statute that would give that that would allow them to choose their electors irrespective of the result of a popular vote. It's it's actually astonishing.
0: And, and so, just to be clear, I mean, we're not just talking about. The 2020 election, right? Like we're not just talking about this candidate who is saying that Trump was was wronged almost two years ago. This is about how this candidate could influence elections going forward, and c- could have a major stake in whether those whether those elections are are fair and reliable and um, democratic. Absolutely. I mean, it's worth
1: noting that Mr. Mastriano also is still trying to quote unquote, decertify the 2020 result. I haven't talked to a lawyer who knows what that means or what, you know, legal value that such a gesture would actually carry. I mean, I think the answer from most corners of the legal world is none. However, I think it's more important to focus on what he's talking about doing going forward, as you say. And he's talking about uh, giving the legislature the power in 2024, for instance, in the next presidential election, to set aside the popular vote Mm. and choose its own electors. And just to back up for those listeners who uh, don't understand the complexities of the Electoral College, when a state chooses one one presidential candidate over another, that candidate's electors are the ones that go... you know, become a part of the Electoral College, which is the 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 group of electors that chooses our president. So, if Pennsylvania chooses Joe Biden as it did in 2020, Pennsylvania's electors are Biden electors. What Mastriano is proposing is letting the legislature say, "No, no, we're sending Trump's electors to the Electoral College wow. this year. We know better. We think this election was stolen," and they can do that if they put it in a statute uh, in their state code. That this is how electors shall be appointed in Pennsylvania.
0: Amy, I also want to talk about that second bucket of candidates that you spoke of, of people who are not necessarily talking extensively about the 2020 election or talking extensively about, like, Trump being wronged by not um, getting a second term as president, but who are still kind of, like, walking up to that line of talking about election fraud or the need to to address things or that are wrong with our election system. Can you talk about an example of one of those candidates and how this is playing out in, in their race? We looked at roughly 175 races. Those are
1: for U.S. House, U.S. Senate and state level offices that have some measure of power over the administration of elections. So that's governor, attorney general, lieutenant governor, and in most cases, secretary of state. Uh, of those 175 or so races, approximately or at least 108 were what we determined to be actually embracing Trump's false statements. But another 41 stopped short of that, but are still embracing the idea of more election integrity is needed. What's amazing about it is that those those numbers include candidates who many of us view as people who stood up to Donald Trump, people like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, mm-hmm. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, these are folks who refused the president's entreaties to not certify the result in Georgia. And yet they have embraced the quote-unquote election integrity platform. And I think what that says is how how much the the party has been taken over by this narrative. Mm it's it's this is where we got the idea of saying in our story this has become a price of admission to run for office in the republican party in america today
0: you know when we talk about the the prevalence of quote unquote big lie candidates in some ways i, I feel like it's easy to talk about it and Like talking about the the zombie apocalypse or something where it's like we're just completely overrun with this problem and that we don't really have a way of solving it or addressing it. And I wonder if you think that's true. Like are there examples of ways in which either Democrats or moderate Republicans have like pushed back to succeed against big lie candidates? And what is the strategy for doing that? I
1: think that Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, is a very good example of this, because even though I just finished saying that he had to, you know, dance a little bit with the election integrity platform in order to survive his primary, which he did, he has also been very forthright about the role he played pushing back against Trump. I mean, he out on the campaign trail over and over again, made the excellent point that Donald Trump lost Georgia because something like 30,000 voters didn't vote for him, but did vote for other Republicans down the ballot. One of the arguments against the big lie is that how come all the other Republicans on the ballot or many of the other Republicans on the ballot in 2021, but only Donald Trump lost in lots of cases? And that's an excellent question. And the answer is because he actually lost, right? Because there were voters out there who did not want to vote for him, but who voted for other Republican candidates. So Raffensperger has has in some ways not been shy about saying, look, this is what happened. He actually lost. And I think that that is one of the paths Forward for candidates who are willing to stand up to the false statements. The other thing is a lot of Republicans are embracing the election integrity platform or claiming that the election was stolen. But do we know how they're going to behave when they're actually given the opportunity to thwart the popular will of the people? We probably know how someone like Doug Mastriano will behave because he's been really, really explicit. But I don't think we fully know how all of these people will behave if they're truly tested in the way that the leaders in Georgia were truly tested a year and a half ago.
0: That's interesting. That you're, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that you're... Trying to be optimistic? yeah, going too far to say optimistic, but that, like, maybe this is all talk from people who are on the campaign trail and know that this is what is going to activate Trump fans, but that they, you know, when it comes down to it, when they govern, that they might take a path of more responsibility and not completely and upend our our <laughs> our democratic systems. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a big a, a big thing to be optimistic about, I guess.
1: Yes, although then here's the thing to be pessimistic about, which is that even if some of these people are just trading on rhetoric to get elected, but they wouldn't actually thwart our democracy, the fact of trading on the lies is itself damaging our democracy. The fact that uh, faith in our elections is down and continuing to fall is damaging our democracy. And I, and and there's, there's lots of literature on this. If our electorate does not believe in the uh, safety and security and fairness of its elections, they will stop participating. And that will be the beginning of the end. I mean, that's something that lots of constitutional experts and election experts talk about all the time. And that is happening right now because of this rhetoric.
0: So then, Amy, it feels like the big question here is, is anyone getting the opposite message, right? The the message that the 2020 election was conducted fairly, that Trump lost for a reason, that our uh, election institutions are something that should be trusted and that you should not be listening to these candidates who are saying that, you know, that, that Trump should have won. I mean, it seems like if that's what these hearings that we're watching on TV are aimed at doing, if that's what um, a few candidates are successful at trying to, like, push back against the big lie are are saying. I mean, is, is anyone getting that message?
1: I do think people are getting that message. What I fear, though, is that it's become a partisan message. It's become a partisan statement to say that the 2020 election wasn't stolen. And what I also fear is that it, it's going to become a new reality that no matter which side loses, whether it's the Republican side or the Democratic side, the losers will feel more empowered to claim. Fraud, or that the election was rigged because they lost. Because that's what we're seeing on the Republican side. Even this year, and in the Virginia governor's race in in 2021, for instance, we heard accusations of rigged elections in places where the vote was, you know, contested or there were close races. And that is also extremely damaging to our democracy. We actually already have seen this baton get sort of tossed from one party to the next. In 2018, it was Stacey Abrams, the losing candidate for governor in Georgia, who claimed the election was rigged. She never officially conceded her defeat to Kemp. And there wasn't any question that he had won uh, and that the discrepancies that had been investigated that year were not difference making in terms of the number of votes cast and the and the margin of victory for Kemp. And that kind of uh, rhetoric, if it goes back and forth and if we become a, a nation where we don't accept the election unless our candidate wins, is also a real problem for the future of our democracy.
0: Amy, thank you so much for all of this. You're welcome. Amy Gardner is a national politics reporter for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. After the break, we hear about a tech support hotline that's becoming a critical issue in the war in Ukraine. We'll be right back. And now, one more thing.
4: A big part of the reason they've been able to keep up fighting and
2: to make this war a strategic failure for Russia is because the United States together, our allies and partners, have had their back. The United States alone has committed more than 5,500 javelins to Ukraine. You're changing the nation. You really are.
0: Throughout the war in Ukraine, the Javelin has become a symbol of U.S. support for Ukrainian troops. A
2: Javelin is a single-man-carried anti-tank weapon that launches a missile that punches through armor from as far as about two and a
0: half miles away. That's reporter Alex Horton. He's been covering the war in Ukraine for The Post, and he has actually been trained on a javelin.
2: In a distant life, I uh, I was an army infantryman and I was selected for javelin school, which is a two
0: week, 80 hour course Javelins are made by the American company Lockheed Martin, and they have become the weapon of choice in Ukraine. You can throw it in the back of a pickup. You can carry it on your shoulder. You can give somebody this rocket and say, here, go hide in that bush and then shoot that tank a mile away. The problem is these weapons are very, very complicated.
2: This is like having a supercomputer attached to a warhead. It breaks. You can drop it. There will be error messages that Ukrainian soldiers don't understand. Things like, you know, bracketing error. What does that mean? How do you fix that?
0: Which poses serious problems for these soldiers. You're in the middle of a battle and suddenly these expensive weapons are malfunctioning. So like you do with any piece of malfunctioning computer equipment, you call tech support.
2: So I got a hold of this card and it has a 188 number to call if you have any problems with the javelin. So I call that number. I got like the normal kind of hold music if you're calling like Comcast. Or
0: we will answer your call in 22 minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know,
2: if you can't destroy a Russian tank or you're calling from a rotary phone, press 2. <laughs> Hello? Hello, is this the uh, Javelin I talk? Yes. Hey, uh, my name's Alex Horton. Sorry, I say, hey, I'm a reporter with the Washington Post. I want to ask some questions about your call center, like, how does it work? Have you guys gotten any calls from Ukraine recently? What do you tell them? What do you guys do here? Is it this a 24-7 operation? Basic questions about that. And they referred me straight to a Lockheed Martin spokesperson because they were not authorized
0: to, to talk about this. Okay. I appreciate that.
3: All right. All right. Thanks, sir.
2: Have yep. a good day. See
0: Alex was surprised when he found out that this javelin customer service hotline exists. But he was even more surprised when he learned that, in many cases, Ukrainian soldiers aren't hearing about this hotline and that they aren't getting the training they need to be able to use these weapons effectively and troubleshoot problems. So it exists, but it's very unclear if this resource is being
2: utilized. The folks I've talked to, including an American, he's an Army veteran, You know, he spent a couple months training Ukrainians on how to use a javelin after he himself self-taught on it. He came across this card and he asked other people, no one's heard of this thing. No one's heard of other kind of resources outside of the Ukrainian military to contact if they have problems. And they certainly don't have these training simulators that are supposed to come with every javelin where you hook up to a computer and you can sort of run like a sort of like a simulation where, you know, you kind of choose targets and you go through the complicated trigger sequence. No one has these despite some assurances from the Pentagon that, you know, these are reaching or they don't need them.
0: What do you think these challenges with the Javelin say about the challenges of winning a war? I mean, it seems like we are spending so much money in supporting Ukraine in this war, but that in some ways that isn't everything, that, that the situation is still so complicated.
2: I think it says that commitment. And duration of a promise goes on a lot further than you think. When the U.S. and other allies said, we're going to help Ukraine, we're going to send billions of dollars of weapons and ammunition and resources, you know, the U.S. can't send 30,000 javelins. The U.S. has sent 5,500 so far. They can't send 30,000. The U.S. does not have an unlimited supply of these things. So as the war goes on, this issue is going to get deeper and more consequential because at some point, those guns are going to run out of ammunition and the Russians are going to say, we can go places that we couldn't go yesterday because they're shooting that much fewer artillery. It's going to change the dynamics of the battlefield
0: like that. Alex, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Martine. Always a pleasure.
0: Alex Horton is a national security reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Natalie Bettendorf and edited by Ted Muldoon and Rena Flores. Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and Ted Muldoon. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.